hopefully you do, and hopefully you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, because we're a couple weeks in here, and our goal today, just so you kind of know where we're going, is to get from verse 1 to 23. So in other words, we're slicing chapter 2 into two parts, which is a little bit a little bit unfortunate, but I'm guessing you don't want to be here for about three hours to try to get through the whole thing. Um, so we're going to deal with the first half, and then next week, the, uh, the other part of it. But it all is one complete story that actually, and I'll just let you in on kind of how the story is built, because the structure of the story actually drives us to the main point. So uh, even though we're not covering the whole thing, it, basically it's a story that's got five scenes to it. And so when you're writing in ancient days, it was hard, harder for them uh, to use some of our conventions to be able to focus on the key idea. We can use punctuation, we can underline, we can bold, we can italicize. 2,500 years ago, you didn't have those tools at your disposal, so you used other things to make sure that when someone read, and they were trained, and they would have understood this, we're just at a disadvantage, because this isn't how we do it, but 2,500 years ago, someone reading the book of Daniel would have been able to know by the structure what the key, key part of the story was. So the story begins, and we'll walk through this today, in a in a scene before Nebuchadnezzar, and that's scene one, and it ends with a scene before Nebuchadnezzar in scene five. There's five parts. Scene two is a scene that is not before Nebuchadnezzar, but it's in his palace or throne room, however we want to describe that. And scene four is another scene that is not before Nebuchadnezzar, but again, it's in his palace. So we've got Nebuchadnezzar and then not Nebuchadnezzar in one and two, and not Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar in scene four and five, which leaves us and you're all starting to figure this out, right? Leaves us with pivotal scene three, which is actually going to take place in verse 17 and go to verse 23, which is the scene that takes place in Daniel's home. And so it's just a way of making sure that as we, the reader, go through here, we don't miss the main focal point of what we're being told. The, the second structural piece, and again, sorry to bother you. Some of you are really, you're daydreaming for a minute. I'll let you know when we're done this. Um, the second structural piece is if you, like my Bible is really helpful. It's, it's written for people who may not figure this out really quickly. Most of it is written in prose. So it's just sort of like a conversational type of description. And then in verse uh, 20, uh, yeah, verse 20, it switches to poetry. So my Bible actually sets that apart so I can see that I've got these sort of sentences. I know it's very, very small. I read it. It's like, can you see? Um, <laughs> It's just written like in prose. And then for a few verses, he switches to poetry. And don't make the mistake of feeling like, oh, he switched to poetry. It's less significant. He's doing it because it is of vast, great significance. And he wants to do things that will draw your attention to here so you don't miss it. All right? So that's just going on in the background. We're going to do our best to work through this story this morning. The story actually starts out at a very interesting point that probably you'll be able to at least partly identify with, but not fully. Uh, partly because most of us have had those nights where we wake up in the middle of the night, maybe having had a dream, sort of that cold sweat where you're just Ill, Ill at ease, or maybe you've gone through nights of that. And that's actually really what's being described for us in the first verse or two. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was, was troubled, and sleep left him. And the description is of, of multiple dreams. The, the word is plural. In other words, this gets that feeling of he's been going on night after night after night. Waking up in the middle of the night with this dream. Troubled by it. Can't sleep. 
The dream, and we're going to get there next week just so we kind of know why this might trouble him, um, is the dream of a large statue. A statue of a man, come to see, made of various types of materials from more valuable all the way down to quite common and brittle by the feet. And then a rock comes. And the rock hits the feet, hits the statue. The statue is turned to dust. The wind blows it away. The rock grows and grows and grows into a mountain and eventually fills the earth. Now, if you were Nebuchadnezzar 2,500 years ago, I, I think I'm, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb and guarantee he knew this much. The dream was somehow about him. I think he knew that. In fact, I think we sort of see that in some of the next stories that are kind of come because he actually builds himself a statue. Um, but I think as he woke up at night, he knew there was something important in this dream, something that involved him. Now, I don't know all what would have gone through his head. At this point in history, he is unparalleled in his power and authority. He has, at this point, for a brief season of his life, defeated all his enemies. No one left. He's destroyed the Assyrian Empire. He's destroyed the Egyptian Empire. He's destroyed all the little empires around him. There's no competitors. Greece isn't there yet in the story to even rival. And he has all authority. He's immensely powerful. He's wealthy. He's even by his own people very highly regarded. Uh, we might look at him as a villain for good reason, but, but through the lens of the, the Empire of Babylonian, this is their golden age. He has it all. Not only that, but he's got all these now nations paying him tribute. You know how that works, right? They basically tax them. So not only does he have it all, but he's getting more. There's actually a card game. I, I, no one told me the name in between services, but we had a couple names for it. But one of the names it goes by is like this game president, where you sit around a table, you deal cards, and then someone is the president. They're the winner. And then there's someone else down at the other end of the table. It goes by various names, um, which I won't use. Uh, but, but the interesting part of the game is every round, the person in the, the president, the winning person, gets the best cards of the losing person. Some of you know this game. And then the president gets to give away their worst cards to the poor losing person. I love the game when I'm in the president's seat, and the rest of the time it's the worst game on the planet. Because the rich keep getting richer, and the poor guy who's losing, it's almost impossible to get out of the chair. Nebuchadnezzar's the president. He's got it all. And he wakes up with a dream of a statue of a man that crumbles. Now, for us, if we go to sleep at night and we wake up with a, with a dream, probably, if you're like me, what you conclude and you start wrestling through is like, all these things that happened in my last week that sort of start showing up in weird ways, so maybe like a person I run into on Tuesday, uh, and then something that happens on Thursday, and a house that I grew up in when I was a kid, all kind of get jumbled up, and they come out as this weird story in my head. And my conclusion is, it's like, oh, these are all these Memories and little bits and pieces that somehow come together in this fascinating, weird story that's called my dream. And it feels like it's all just this internal thing, right? We don't, we don't look probably and go, well, that's like something coming from the outside. But 2,500 years ago, that's not how they thought of dreams. 2,500 years ago, when Nebuchadnezzar went to sleep at night and woke up with a dream, he instantly, and I 
know this because this is how the Babylonians wrote and what they thought, that the dream came from the outside. It was communication of the gods to man. And so the dream meant something. It meant that there was information the gods were trying to communicate with you about the future. In fact, one of the ways that the Babylonians described dreams were that dreams were the shadow of the future. Isn't that an interesting sort of thing? So the future's happening. It casts a shadow back on us, and my dream is this shadow. And you know what shadows are like? Like I'm looking at mine on the stage. It doesn't look like me, but if you kind of look at it right, you realize there's some shape, there's some resemblance. And so the whole goal for the Babylonians was to try to look at the shadow of this dream and try to figure out what does that communicate about the future. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this great statue and his mind is troubled because he's looking and saying something about this dream is the shadow of something to come. But I can't figure it out. Now the Babylonians had all sorts of ways to do this. We've looked at this a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Actually, if you go and read Ezekiel 21, verse 21, you read a fascinating account of, uh, of a king who comes to a crossroad, and Ezekiel just describes in one little verse what he does at the crossroad. He tries three different ways to divine what to do. One of them is something to do with arrows, sort of this little ceremony. One's about these little idols, and then I think he's looking at, um, I think it's actually specifically pointed out, he looks at the livers of an animal. In other words, he comes to a, a crossroads, and he's trying to find out from the gods what's coming in the future so he can pick the right thing. And he uses all these techniques to figure it out. This is what the Babylonians were wired to do. In fact, if you look at verse 2, you'll find out that the king, when this happens, he brings in his magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, and summons them to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Now again, just for those of you who are watching the details of this story emerge, he's listed three different types of roles, the magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers, and then, I don't think we quite get the sense in English, the Chaldeans is not a fourth role. Those are three different types of people who divine things. The Chaldeans is a broad term to describe them all. Again, a couple weeks ago we looked at this. It's an ethnic term. Um, so the Chaldean tribe basically is running the Babylonian Empire. They are very fascinated in this stuff. Not every Babylonian is a Chaldean, but every Chaldean is a Babylonian, if you can kind of remember high school logic. So the Chaldeans are fascinated with the future and divination. And we've just found out that there's these three types of job that Nebuchadnezzar has, these people who are in his employment, essentially. He brings them all together. They collectively are known as the Chaldeans. And I only mention that because if you look at verse 4, we just come to now the broad term, right? Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. In other words, all these different groups come together with a, a unified message. That's what's going on in the story. Because they have just been told by the king that their job is to tell him, you see it there in verse 2, his dream. You see, that's a problem. Be one thing if I came to you and told you my dream and you could make some guesses of like what was going on in my life and you know what. But it's another thing if I came to you and said, hey, I want you to tell me what you think my dream meant and what my dream was. Because that you could never do. I mean, how would you possibly ever pick one random picture out of trillions of options? I mean, who could possibly do that? And that's very quickly the point that's going to come up. The king said in verse 3, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. 
The Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, which, by the way, from this point on here in chapter 2 until the end of chapter 7, we switch from the book being written in Hebrew to now being written in Aramaic. Thankfully, we have this great English translation to read from. Here's what the Chaldeans say. All these various professional diviners. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. We're sort of into a bit of a negotiation. He calls them in and says, I want to know my dream. They flatter him, live forever. Um, We would be happy to let you know the interpretation if you just tell us the dream. The king answered, verse 5, and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. Your houses shall be laid in ruin. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream will show its interpretation. The king said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's but one sentence. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can show me its interpretation. So you get what's going on here in this throne room, a very awkward moment for these diviners. Because the king's got a hunch. The hunch is that these advisors been telling him what he wants to hear. And he's sick and tired of it. I actually think it goes beyond that. I think we see a little bit of the very thing Paul describes for us in vivid detail in Romans chapter 1 of what happens to us when we turn from worshiping God to worshiping the things that God made. And Paul describes the downward spiral, which is almost word for word what we, what we see and read going on in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. There's Paul says we we start becoming boastful and proud, and then we become foolish, and we become ruthless, and we become heartless. You see that in the life of Nebuchadnezzar? There's no wisdom left here. There's just pride and soon-to-be brutality. You remember this story that's coming, maybe some of us, in the book of Daniel. When the king of Babylon makes a decree, there's no turning back. That's actually pivotal in the story of Daniel in the lion's den because Daniel's going to find himself being sort of thrown into a lion's den. But at the last minute, it's like the king regrets what he's done and wishes he can change it, but then realizes he's made a decree. And we're going to find out a little bit later in chapter 2 that this is actually another decree. And there's no turning back. When the king says, if you can't do this, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb, there is no way for this to be turned back. The only hope for these wise men, and and it's like the king stumbles on it, is to delay. And so you see him referring to that a couple times, where where they start responding, and he starts saying, um, well, it was a couple times in there, um, verse 9, I think it shows up, about, you know, till the times change. In other words, they're trying to hold on and distract them. It's like, we we want to, and we will, we'll get to it. But, But Nebuchadnezzar knows, like, you're just trying to, you're just trying to delay But this time, I'm going to insist on this. The word is firm. That's his expression a couple times. There's no turning back. I think part of of Nebuchadnezzar's problem, and I I hope we'll never get there, is that 
he's lied and cheated. You see, when you start lying and you lie enough, you start thinking that everyone lies. If you start cheating people, it's not long after that you start thinking everyone's cheating you. You start assuming of others the brokenness of your own heart. Nebuchadnezzar is clearly there. He trusts no one. And along with that insecurity of his heart, now will come a brutality. Because that's what happens. When you're, when you're not at peace inside, peace with God, you're not going to have peace with the world around you. And so we start to see that creeping through the story. He's going to become increasingly brutal. And it's just almost like a, a symptom of the lack of peace this man has with him in himself. Because there's no peace between him and God. And so the story continues to roll on. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered him. In my Bible, I've got most of verse 10 and 11 underlined. If you're in the habit of underlining, I think these are pretty critical ones that we're going to kind of see and come back to a couple times. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. In other words, King, we want to appeal to tradition. <laughs> like, we're in trouble. Ever find yourself doing that when you're in trouble? And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, no one's ever done it that way. We shouldn't do it that way now. That's where they go. It's a doomed approach then and usually is now. They go on, and here's what they say, verse 11. The thing the king asks is difficult. Now, there's an understatement. And no one can show it to the king. Now, mark this line really well. Except the God's whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, these wise men, these diviners come to the king and they say, no one can do this. Only the gods know. But here's the problem. They don't dwell with us. So what you've asked is impossible. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry. Now, I'm not sure what the this is. I have theories. If you're in a small group and wrestling through this in the next while, that would be a great, interesting conversation, or maybe one in the car on the way home. What was it that so infuriated him? Because that's what happens. He becomes very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. I think it's the fact that God remains, in his mind, so elusive. He just wants to know. And God won't tell him. And it drives him into an absolute rage. Now, it's interesting. If you were to go to Genesis and read the story of Joseph, at this point in the story, you would discover that the story of Joseph is written before this, but this is written really to parallel the story of Joseph. In fact, some of the very words used in the two accounts are identical words. So Joseph, for those of you who aren't, maybe haven't read that story recently or never have, Joseph was one of a number of brothers. He ends up being sold into slavery by his brothers who hate him and despise him. He's sold into Egypt, so he's a foreigner in a foreign country. He makes stands for integrity, ends up in prison, and there in prison we discover an interesting, amazing thing that God does, the grace of God in the life of Joseph, allowing him to understand and interpret dreams. While he's in prison, there's a couple other fellow prisoners who have dreams. Joseph's able to help them. And in exchange, one of them says, when I get out of here, I'll help you. But he forgets. We're told two years later, look for a second at chapter 2, verse 1. 
You see that interesting little note in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Lots of people stumble over that one because if you do the math, right? Nebuchadnezzar's been king, then he captures Jerusalem, then he takes Daniel, and Daniel goes through three years of school. You start to see the problem here? And now in chapter 2, verse 1, we're back in Nebuchadnezzar's second year of his reign. Now there's a couple things to bear in mind here. One is how, how um, Babylonians counted years, uh, which is different than we do. In fact, most of the Old Testament is different because just sort of the, the ancient world counted years very, very differently than us. They counted part of a year as a full year. So if I said to you, we're going to do something, we're going to start in December 2019, and we're going to end in Jan January of 2021, right? We have December of one year, the full next calendar year, and a month of the next year. In the ancient world, I would have called that three years. But we, we wouldn't. We would go, that's only 14 months. But that's, they, they just counted time differently. And then on top of that, they didn't count the first year of a king's reign as year one. The first year was the ascension year. Year two was the first year of his reign. So actually, if you know all the pieces, the, the math works out really, really easily. It's not a problem at all that we're reading that this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But I think the story is written by design to put it that way, so that in your mind you'd go, oh, Hold on a second. There's a story back in Genesis. I think it starts in 41, meanders through maybe about chapter 44, where we're told something happens in the second year of the Pharaoh's reign. And we're told that in the second year of the Pharaoh's reign, he is troubled. And we're told the identical thing of Nebuchadnezzar. And then we're told that the Pharaoh tries to bring all of his wise men, but no one can answer for him what the dream's about. And then finally, someone remembers that there's this foreigner. They've been keeping him in prison. And he could know. And then the foreigner is brought before the Pharaoh. And what does he say? Well, I can't tell you. But my God can. And what's Daniel about to tell the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar? I can't tell you. But my God can. And I think we're, we're intended to see the parallels. And I'll, I'll get to the why in just a couple moments. But I just wanted you to see that as we're working through this story, that we've got two parallel stories that God works through to reveal who he is. So verse 13, the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him, which I think is the first part of the story where Daniel even is aware that this is going on. In fact, it seems like the executioner has to explain to Daniel why he's about to be killed. Daniel's unaware. Daniel hasn't been part of the, the first team diviners brought in. Remember, Daniel's probably young, probably very inexperienced at this point. But he is labeled among them. And so when all the wise men are going to be killed, Daniel's going to be killed. I wonder myself what it must have felt like at that moment for Daniel. It's probably, it's maybe even something you've felt before when you followed Jesus. Where you were amazed at how merciful and gracious God was to work and intervene and to save you. And you assume that because he's done that, that, that he, will, he will use, that there's a purpose in front. And then all of a sudden you hit this moment where it just looks like it was all in vain. That God did all this amazing stuff for you. And now it just seems like there's no next step. Like there's nothing coming. In Daniel's case, it looks like he's going to die. Like everything that God had done to spare him, to show him favor, was for nothing. 
he was about to be executed. And at that moment, he throws himself entirely on the mercy of God. That's a scary spot, but it's not a bad spot. We don't know in verse 16 what this looked like. Daniel gets a message somehow to the king and basically says, I'll come before you and I'll interpret this dream. We're not told the specifics. What we are told is verse 17, Daniel went to his house, made the manner known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those three young men who were with him, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. There was no plan B. He doesn't say, let's see if we can figure this out. He doesn't let's put our heads together after all. We're the brightest and best. He is absolutely aware that aside from God, there's no hope. That's scary. And it's good. Don't be afraid of that moment, Emmanuel. Verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, pay really careful attention to this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my Father, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And now made known to me what we've asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. See how twice he points to a specific set of attributes of God? God is both wise and mighty. You see why that's so important? Because you could be wise but not have the power to do anything about it. You could be powerful but not have the wisdom to know how to handle it. But Daniel looks at God and he says, you are both wise. You always know what to do and you're powerful your arm is not limited it's not short you're never going to run out of strength to accomplish your purposes Daniel says that's what you need to know about God that's why that's at the heart of this whole chapter Daniel comes to this place where he says here's here's what God is revealing of himself here's God's done all of this to get to this moment that we would read the story and go, we've just learned two things about God. He is mighty and he's powerful. And if you go back and you read the story of Joseph, you want to know what you're going to learn? You're going to discover the exact things. Exact things were supposed to come to light through the story of Joseph. In fact, Acts chapter 7 picks up Joseph's story. Uh, very fascinating that, that there tucked away in the New Testament we get, sorry, the same story. And I'm Flipping my pages because I haven't been using my notes very much. Uh, here we go. Acts 7, verse 10. The Lord gave Joseph wisdom. And then the Lord accomplishes his purposes. And you remember Joseph's summary statement? Maybe some of you love this verse. I know I do. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. This is a very, very potent statement. God's intending. God's working. God is acting. You see, when you get to the book of Isaiah, which is a great book, it's a hard one because there's so much going on in it, but there in Isaiah, God reveals so much of who he is. In chapter 46, verse 9, God speaks of these very attributes of who he is. Here's what he says. I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. In other words, God's saying, here's, here's what is unique about me. This is what makes me God. 
Here it is. He answers it in verse 10. What is it? What is it, God? What is, what is so other about you? Here it is. Declaring the end from the beginning. I know. I know the end. I know the beginning. I, I know it all. The very issue, this, this issue of wisdom and knowledge, but it's not just, it's not just an issue of knowledge. And when we get to the next statement, or a little bit later there in verse 10, God explains it like this. My counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purpose. And in case we missed it, he comes back to it in verse 11 and says, I have purposed and I will do it. What's he saying? He's saying, here's, how I, here's the reason I know from you know, the beginning and the end. It's not just that I can predict and have lots of knowledge. I'm actually purposing it. I do it. That's how I know what happened at the beginning and what's going to happen at the end because I'm doing everything in between. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. And, and I get it. If you're sitting there going, that just raises a whole bunch of questions. Yeah, it does. It raises lots of hard things. But I've met people who have said, you know, because I have so many questions, I'm going to hold on to my questions and throw away the sovereignty of God. You know what? That just leaves you in such a worse spot. Can I encourage you to hold on to the sovereignty of God with all your questions? Say, you know, I'm going to bow before his sovereignty, even though I don't understand all the parts of it, and trust he knows the beginning from the end because he is, it's his story. He's purposing, he counsels, he says, and he accomplishes. That's the God of Scripture. That's the God that Daniel wants us to meet in the middle of this story. He's wise and he's mighty. He knows and he does. And just, that's, that's what I've come to learn about God. That's why he's able to save him at this point. Because this vision, as we're going to see, is not just the prediction. This is what God's doing. Now, there's one last thing I want you to see as we come to the communion table. One last, remember verse 11? I had you underline it, and I still haven't referred back to it. I want to make sure you see it as we work our way through. One last majestic, awesome truth that if you could just grab hold of just one thing this morning, this is what I want you to grab hold of. So if I've lost you, just come back for five more minutes. That last statement, these wise men stumble upon. It's brilliant. No one can show this to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Right? Remember the problem. They, they recognize that we can't do this. It would take God. But God doesn't dwell with flesh. Now, if you read carefully the story of Joseph, both in Genesis 41 and in Acts chapter 7, in addition to the fact that God points out that he gives wisdom, there is one other detail of the story that's described in Genesis 41 and reiterated in Acts chapter 7. And here's what it is. In, in Genesis 41, I think it's verse 37, we find out this description of Joseph. There is no one like him in whom is the Spirit of God. It's an interesting statement, so here's what it means. These, these Egyptian people have looked at, at Joseph. They've heard the wisdom. He understands things that they never could, and what do they conclude? God is with him. <laughs> the Spirit of God is in him. Acts chapter 7 describes it this way. The Lord gave Joseph wisdom... The Lord was with him. In other words, this, this observation that the, the wise men of Babylon had, that no one can know because only God knows this and God doesn't dwell with us, is not true. Only God does know, but God does dwell with us. If you go to John chapter 1, 
as John gives his, I don't know, could we call it a Christmas story? <laughs> it's the beginning of the account of Christ according to John. Just, I'll just read it one more time just because I want to make sure we catch, catch what's going on here. There's actually going to be lots in John. We're going to be going back and forth between Daniel and John a little bit over the weeks to come. Let me just read this statement one more time in Daniel so it's really in our ears. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Catch that? Whose dwelling is not with flesh. John 1.14. The Word, who we know is Jesus from John's description, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You hear the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel is, in many ways, the Babylonians have it absolutely right. <laughs> there are things only God knows, but he doesn't dwell with them. And unless he dwelled with them, there would be no hope. But Jesus comes along and makes himself flesh and dwells with us. Can I suggest to you that that is wonderful news? That if you're sitting here this morning... You are never alone. You are actually in, in an even better spot than Daniel was, who the living God revealed this to, because you have the living God within you, his spirit 